This week on Zizek and So On, we spoke to Matt McManus, professor and author of several recent books, including The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, and more recently, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson, out today, April 24th. In our interview, Matt explains how postmodernism is a cultural condition expressed politically by both liberals and conservatives alike, and he takes us through the implications of a leftist response to the current postmodern situation, carried out by a return to universalist, emancipatory politics. Welcome back. I think we wanted to start with um, how you think of Zizek in your own work and how you came across him initially, and if he's kind of valuable in your analysis. Sure. Um, well, I would say yes, uh, certainly to the last question. Uh, I mean, it's, it would be difficult to be engaged in critical theory uh, in my generation and not to have been influenced by Zizek in some way. Uh, I suppose the first time I encountered his work was back in 2009. Uh, when my undergraduate supervisor at Carleton, Dr. Trevor Purvis, recommended I take a look at his book. I think it was a sublime object of ideology. Uh, and the reason why he suggested I take a look at it is at the point I was really into discourse theory, um, Wittgensteinian accounts of language, uh, mm-hmm. and I found it all very interesting from a theoretical point of view, uh, but also kind of nihilistic or bleak politically, because it wasn't exactly clear how we were supposed to take these ruminations on power and the nature of language uh, and use it to critique society uh, in a way that would open spaces for emancipatory change. Uh, so, of course, he said, mm-hmm. you should have Zizek, his account of ideology and the function that plays in reinforcing uh, support for neoliberal capitalism. Um, and I read the book and I was really, really intrigued by it, uh, as one you know, typically is. Uh, I really enjoyed the kind of pop culture references. Uh, I certainly didn't understand everything that he was talking about at that point, uh, but because Zizek is so prolific, I suppose by the time I got like the fifth or the sixth book by him, uh, I started to get a handle on some of the basic ideas. I think maybe um, it, it would help um, to get an idea of, of how you would define uh, postmodernism. Sure. Well, I think that there are a number of different ways that you, you can define uh, postmodernism. Uh, and certainly, you know, a variety of different authors have taken different routes um, but the way that I usually talk about it is by distinguishing between postmodern theory, uh, as articulated in the work of people like Foucault, uh, like Jacques, uh, Jacques Derrida, Richard Ferrodi, uh, Gayatri Spivak, uh, and what they essentially do is pay, develop a new form of epistemic skepticism um, that has clear parallels with earlier iterations of skepticism uh, that have emerged going all the way back, of course, to antiquity, uh, but also update uh, a lot of these theses um, using the parlance uh, of contemporary philosophy. The way that I tend to interpret postmodernism uh, and the way that I think is actually more helpful uh, is consistent with the articulation of people like Jean-Francois Lyotard, Frederick Jameson, Mark Fisher, uh, David Harvey, where I understand it as a cultural condition that emerged in developed countries um, around the middle of the 20th century uh, and that we're still living in now uh, and where Epistemic skepticism is certainly prevalent, 
but it's not just located in theory. Uh, it's becoming more of a ubiquitous phenomenon that ordinary people are starting to adopt, along with a bunch of other characteristics um, that need to be analyzed from a critical social perspective, rather than just interrogated theoretically at the level of abstract philosophy. Right. Would, would you understand the second form of postmodernism, or the theoretical sort, to be part of the culture you're describing? Absolutely, right? So I generally adopt the Hegelian perspective that philosophy, particularly the continental philosophy, reflects its own time and thought. So the skeptical ruminations that have emerged in postmodern theory uh, are reflective of the fact that we live in a cultural condition uh, where there's declining faith in what Jean-Francois Lyotard would call meta-narratives, uh, and this is forcing individuals to come up with new ways of conceiving the world, conceiving their identity, conceiving the politics, uh, without leaning on shared premises uh, that would have been uncontroversial before. Mm -hmm. We were trying, we were discussing this earlier, and it was it was interesting because we're we're trying to figure out like that how that dynamic works, right? Because it seems as though these philosophers are are trying to point to or that that very kind of lack of historical um, place placement of their own philosophy. So there seems to be a tension there that somehow contradicts um, the claims that they're making. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, there have been a number of people who have raised similar criticisms. Uh, the idea that, you know, postmodern theory is about periodizing uh, different ways of knowing the world. Um, and so can we periodize postmodern theory in the same kind of manner? Uh, and I don't think that a lot of the postmodern theorists developed an adequate answer to that, uh, except by retreating from some of the more hyper-skeptical conclusions uh, that that work sometimes seemed to point to. Uh, and I think this is what you saw Derrida do, uh, where he kind of backed away from the more extreme forms of deconstruction uh, that were starting to be pioneered uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and you also saw people like Richard Rorty, uh, who would make a similar claim, uh, where he'd say, well, I mentioned anticipate my own work is going to become dated as new generations of philosophers come on forward uh, to try to present novel paradigms that will overthrow the ones that we've constructed. Mm -hmm. uh, now, whether that points to a deep tension uh, in postmodern theory, if it's capable of periodizing itself, uh, is a more technical question that we can talk about if you want. Uh, but... Some of the theorists uh, and some were kind of more sensitive to this than others, but I don't think any kind of developed a fully adequate response to it. It seemed to some degree that there was a bit of a myopia with regard to the political implications of some of their theories, or at least it now seems that way. Is it is it a kind of um, failing on the part of of the theory itself that that the political implications are maybe more extreme than might than might have been expected from a left point of view, or was it a kind of like uh, disavowal intentionally of the political sphere? That's a really good question. Uh, and I don't think that in Derrida's case, I mean, we need to take these figures one at a time. Uh, he was intentionally disavowing politics. Uh, I think when he began writing and publishing in the 1960s, uh, the paradigmatic conflict uh, in the world was the Cold War, uh, you know, framed ideologically as a conflict between liberal capitalism uh, and status communism. Uh, and his withdrawal from that uh, was an attempt to take a more bird's eye view uh, of different ways uh, that discourse and language frames itself um, without necessarily situating himself uh, in one position or another. Um, 
But I think you see by the time the 1990s rolls around uh, and communism disappears uh, as a viable alternative to liberal capitalism, that it becomes more assertive and trying to put forward substantive political positions. In part, I think, because while before uh, being kind of an outsider was boon and allowed you to kind of play critical theory uh, credentials, uh, when you're operating at the end of history, uh, where it's presumed that only one set of ideas is correct, uh, you almost have to start to try to put forward some kind of alternative uh, in order to jumpstart a real conversation about the kind of political forms that you're living in again, uh, rather than just operating with the presumption that this is the way things are going to go and you can criticize it here or there, uh, but nothing you do is going to enact any kind of meaningful changes. Your work seems to focus then on the on the, the political dimensions of that postmodern theory, but would you say that the the implications of that that philosophical outlook, um, while not overtly political or intentionally political, um, open themselves up uniquely to to being tools of a, a certain political persuasion? I absolutely think so. Yeah, I mean, this is one of my things that my work is all about. It's that. Postmodern culture uh, has generated very distinctive forms of political agitation and organization uh, that are quite unique uh, to the late 20th and now early 21st century. Uh, and this was inevitable uh, because to a certain extent politics is downwind of culture uh, or downstream of culture, excuse me. Uh, and so to expect that you weren't going to see these kinds of transformations in the long run uh, was naive. And one of the things I criticized conservatives for uh, was presuming that because postmodern theory uh, tends to be pretty formally left-wing, um, postmodern forms of politics were inevitably going to be found on the political left. Once you recognize that postmodernism is a culture uh, or a cultural condition, uh, it's much easier to see how it was inevitable that there would eventually be right-wing forms of postmodern politics that would emerge uh, in reaction to and in tandem with their left-wing counterparts. Right. So you're you're emphasizing that that the transition from the original uh, postmodernism as uh, as a more as, as a formerly a theoretical thing. Do you think Do you think that 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 transition speaks to something that is originally conservative in postmodernism as something formerly theoretical, or is it? in the, the nuance of the transition to something as a postmodernism as a cultural condition that allows it to be taken up by uh, sort of a more right-winged framework? I think that's a very good question. Um, one of the points that I make in both of my books is that there was this kind of presumption for a long time uh, that the kind of the epistemic skepticism uh, characteristic of postmodern culture would be more amenable to left-wing forms of political agitation. Uh, and the reason is that, well, the Criticizing liberal universalism and the pretensions that are associated with that will open up the space for previously marginalized peoples and identities uh, to have their voices heard uh, and potentially articulate new forms of political uh, organization uh, and participation that will be more emancipatory and inclusive uh, than the liberal model that we saw before. And one right. of the things that I point out in the book, though, is that built into this, expect this uh, expectation uh, was the belief that liberal universalism uh, was the only barrier to progressive politics. Uh, what people didn't really pay a lot of attention to was the fact that historically there are many, many reactionary movements uh, that 
have also adopted highly skeptical attitudes towards the pretensions of liberal universalism. Uh, and I, in the book, I point back to people like Edmund Burke or Joseph de Maistre, Carl Schmitt, uh, all these kinds of conservative or reactionary figures who also would say things like, we should reject the conceit that there are universal truths uh, or that there are forms of political organization that are applicable everywhere. Uh, but the reason we should do this is we want to reemphasize the importance of tradition, uh, older ways of doing things, religious orientations, uh, and the kind of socially conservative values that would be associated with that. Uh, and all of these kinds of conservative disposition were obviously highly amenable to embracing uh, the epistemic skepticism that right. became ubiquitous in postmodern culture. And that right. doesn't mean that they had to do this, and it doesn't mean that all forms of conservatism we see right now are distinctively postmodern. Uh, I'm just saying that there was plenty of stuff available in the conservative tradition uh, that was open to this mutation uh, going back many centuries. The point of your, 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 your recent work is to say that it is not uh, necessarily an anomaly, that post postmodern conservatism is actually something that is born out of, a, out of a, a research tradition. It seems that there's a dialectical movement in postmodern conservatism that seems to suggest a truth to original theoretical postmodernism that might not have been actualized or potentially actualized by the left. That there seems to be something more um, of an epitome of postmodernism that's realized in its equation with conservatism that I don't think is possible on the left. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think there's something to this, right? Uh, and if you want me to put it really more down to earth, uh, I think that the left was wrong to reject all forms of universalism as a basis for trying to agitate for emancipatory and inclusive politics. Uh, and I think you see this problem reflected in a lot of the kinds of left-wing theorizing that developed throughout the late 20th and early 21st century, drawing on postmodern theory uh, that had to leave questions about why we should aim for emancipation or why we should aim for inclusion uh, off the table. Since if you were to try to justify uh, these kind of norms, you'd need to appeal to some kind of universalistic sense uh, of moral reason, right? Uh, and conservatism, by contrast, uh, has always had a highly anti-universalistic uh, dimension to it. Because for many conservatives, uh, you're not supposed to interrogate rationally uh, the basis of the traditions and the traditional hierarchies uh, that you live in. Uh, you know, that's opening the door to forms of disorder uh, and chaos that you can associate right. with various forms of liberal rationalism that emerged since the 18th century. Uh, so what we want instead is enough epistemic skepticism so that uh, you're not going to be open uh, to the appeals of liberal rationalism and universalism, uh, but enough dogmatism stemming from the skepticism uh, that you're just going to say at some point, well, there's no really good answer to this, so I'm just going to stick with uh, what I know. Uh, and what I know are the traditions and values and religions and hierarchies uh, that I was brought up with. We're just trying to imagine the, the kind of political horizons of postmodernism. There's something that seems to be the case that even if it is articulated from an apparently left or liberal standpoint, it's still in practice um, either doesn't lead to a kind of emancipatory vision or leads to a strange kind of reaffirmation of the hierarchy where you think that getting 
a political position where you think that you know having a different type of person be a CEO or a position of power is a rearticulation or kind of radical form of politics. So, so I guess simply like um, the there doesn't seem to be at least in effect a huge difference between left and right postmodernism. Or am I being too simplistic in that characterization? Yeah, I mean, I think what you started to see, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, beginning in the late 20th century, is that emancipatory or left-wing politics became about the inclusion of historically marginalized people uh, in liberal capitalist structures of power uh, and liberal capitalist hierarchies. Uh, and I don't think that this is a minor accomplishment. Uh, you know, having more women in the workplace uh, with more opportunities mm -hmm. is a good thing. Uh, mm -hmm. the rights for LGBTQ people is a fantastic development. The fact that you know African Americans and other traditionally racialized minorities uh, now have rights, or at least a certain amount of cultural currency, uh, is a serious boon. Um, but yes. it also focusing relentlessly on that limited our investment in actually changing the structures of domination themselves. And you know, we just wanted more people at the table, uh, if you want, uh, at the apex, uh, and. What I think we need to return to is a moral fashion structural analysis of the deeper uh, mechanisms of power and domination that impact us all. Uh, and I think where you run into problems is in the Anglo-Saxon countries in particular, um, the major parties uh, have all aligned themselves uh, according to what you sometimes termed, you know, third, what you called, uh, you know, third way outlooks, uh, where usually you have a right-wing party uh, that speaks for economic elites and a purportedly left-wing party uh, that is more inclusive and more interested uh, in a variety of different uh, peoples uh, participating, um, but nonetheless speaks for a kind of culturally elitist, uh, from a culturally elitist stance uh, that's also not very interested in changing structures of power. And you can see this with, you know, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party in Canada or the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, and I think it's why we need to see a dramatic change uh, at that level. It seems in the in the end that they both kind of um, become articulations of a uh, capitalist type of ideology. Would you would you understand? I guess if we're going back to the understanding of postmodernism as a culture, would you understand the uh, political forms of postmodernism as a kind of ideology of capitalism? I would say so, yes. Uh, and one of the things that you see emerging in the late 20th century is the sense of what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism, right? Uh, or the idea that there can be no fundamental changes uh, to society because we reach the end of history, uh, this is just what we have. Uh, and the kind of consequence of this is that if people don't think that they can change the world, uh, they're not going to be compelled to try to understand the way that it works uh, in any kind of deep way. They're going to be content uh, with just analyzing the surface ideologies that appear uh, and contenting themselves with the idea that this is just their particular way of thinking about things. It doesn't have to be shared by everyone else uh, because the only thing that really matters is achieving what I want in my personal life. Uh, the possibility of political change uh, or historical change is foreclosed. Uh, and this sense of capitalist realism and the and we, uh, that people feel under it, uh, is a major barrier trying to move back to the more grand, big-scale structural politics that I just talked about, uh, and that mm -hmm. I think we need a serious return to. 
So uh, what would the, a return to those types of emancipatory politics look like? Well, I think there's a number of different things. I mean, one of them would be not being afraid of expressing or appealing to universal truths about what it is that people want and what people need. Yes. Uh, and I think that this is something you saw the Bernie Sanders campaign initially at least do really well, talking about things like access to healthcare for all, access to fair opportunities for all, uh, access to education for everyone. You know, one of the things that he continuously emphasizes is this isn't just about this group or that group, this is about everyone. Uh, and one of the reasons he was initially successful uh, is I think there's a real hunger uh, for that kind of politics. Uh, now, ultimately, of course, it fell apart uh, near the end, and that's really unfortunate, and we can talk about the reasons for it, uh, but I think that's the direction we should be trying to go in in the future. What role do you see the, the media playing in all this, or, or, or does it play a central role for you? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, in my book, I talk a lot about Neil Postman's seminal sociological uh, treatise, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, and one of the things that Postman talks out is there's always this assumption that we're savvier and more critically minded now in the 21st century uh, than people were, for instance, in the early 20th century. Uh, and he observes mm -hmm. that this might not be true, uh, at least in the way that we think it is. And the reason is because early in the 20th century, the way that most people would have imbibed information about what was going on in the world uh, was through books, print media. Uh, and the thing about print media is you're forced to look at multiple different sides of an issue and analyze it in depth. Um, you have to read a book or a newspaper article on different sides to things. Mm -hmm. uh, and this at least compels you to be somewhat critical of whatever it is that you're looking at. By contrast, in the late 20th and the early 21st century, what we see is things like radio, television, uh, now Facebook and social media emerge, uh, where most of the information that we imbibe is boiled down to five-minute segments. Uh, there's an immense amount of competition, so any information has to be presented in a really entertaining, simple, accessible way. Uh, and while this is beneficial in some respects, uh, it's also dangerous uh, because people who absorb most of the information about the world in five-minute sound bites uh, and are getting it all from the same source uh, and delivered as polemically and entertainingly as possible aren't really going to be critically minded about it. Uh, and when it comes to something like postmodern conservatism, this is why I talk about the influence of something like Fox News or Rush Limbaugh, um, because they really took advantage of these developments in changing media technologies, you know, to present uh, these really spicy and angry, you know, five-minute monologues that have very little basis in reality, um, mm -hmm. but nonetheless distill complexity into a very simple form that's appealing to a lot of people, in particular. Uh, individuals who have a reactionary bent uh, and who are concerned about the growing complexity of the world. Uh, so find somebody who can make it simpler, uh, really appealing as a figurehead. Ongoing, how is that postmodern conservatism manifesting throughout, throughout the world? I mean, we see Donald Trump, we see Viktor Orban. What are the implications that we, that we are met with in the near future in regards to that? Well, I think it goes well beyond even just them. I mean, one of the things that I talk about is that you see people like Donald Trump, yes. Uh, you also see people like Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson. Uh, but there's also Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, who recently just got rid of the last vestiges of democracy in his country uh, and is all but ruling as an autocrat now. You see people like Modi in India, uh, who parties openly flirting uh, with fascist rhetoric about Muslims, uh, calling them you know, 
scum and cockroaches and trying to get rid of them. Uh, you see that with people like Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, who has this extremely hard-line pact uh, against gays, uh, and who uses all kinds of modern technology, particularly WhatsApp, uh, to disseminate this simple message of hatred. So I think it's a major problem, uh, and it's highly concerning that the left has allowed things to go this far. And we need to be doing a lot more to try to turn the tide in the other direction. It, yeah, it seems as though um, because of that uh, position in the left, uh, the postmodern perspective, there was uh, an inability to really articulate a structural response to the rise of this conservative um, iteration. There was like a, a kind of gap in the market almost of, of a cohesive leftist um, response to that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also because most forms of left-wing political agitation right now uh, tend to be relatively unappealing um, when it comes to the media and cultural climate uh, that we're living in right now. Uh, and my friend and colleague Mike Watson wrote a really good book on the subject it's called Can the Left Learn to Me? Um, but one of the, and, you know, Angela Nagel also wrote a really good book uh, where she was talking about the appeal uh, of the alt-right to digital communities, uh, her book, Kill All Normies. Uh, you know, but one of the things that they both point out is that, look, like a lot of the times left-wing activism takes the form of angry people policing language. You know what I mean? Right, right. This is a bit of a cliche, but there is some truth to this. Uh, and the problem is, what do you do in a digital context where you can't police language uh, and people are looking for something that's entertaining and insightful uh, without necessarily being judgmental. Uh, and unless the left can find ways of appealing to people who live in that kind of cultural condition, it's gonna be relegated to a distant second place for the near future. Uh, and I'm hoping things are gonna change, and I think they are. But that's obviously something that we have to look to the future to decide. Do you think that uh, postmodernism can still be useful from um, a sort of formal left stance or is postmodern conservatism a, a signal of it of its sort of end and that we need to return to in order to sort of gain focus on emancipatory politics do we need to return to theory to to the to, to the philosophical tradition as such or 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 can we still sort of um can we still use postmodernism in an effective way on the left i certainly think that you can um but i do believe that it's time is coming to an end uh and I think what more and more people are starting to witness is the fact that a lot of the tropes that the political left leaned on, uh, you know, appealing to epistemic skepticism and identity politics and so on, uh, can now be just as quickly and even more readily uh, operationalized by the political right. Yes. Uh, and when more and more people come on board to that realization, I think you're going to start to see a drift away from that kind of politics on the political left. Uh, now. When this is going to happen, or how substantially it's going to happen, or what's going to replace uh, it, you know, that I can't say. Um, but I do think you're starting to see people like ContraPoints, uh, or Ben Burgess, or, uh, or the Michael Brooks Show, uh, and a bunch of these different outlets that are kind of moving in a more engaged, funny, uh, post-postmodern way. Uh, whether or not that's going to be a trend for the future, I can't tell you, but I, I hope so at least. Just to bring Zizek back into it, 
Um, he says that despite all the complications, he still calls himself a communist. For instance, um, threat to the commons, the implications of technology on subjectivity, um, ecological disasters. Do you think that there's a utility in in remaining uh, or speaking from a communist position, calling yourself a communist, or do you do you think there's uh, do you identify as that? No, I don't personally. I mean, I think with these different appeals to communism on Zizek's part or democratic socialism on Bernie's part and Sanders' parts are trying to accomplish uh, is to gesture towards a faith or a conviction uh, that there needs to be a fundamental change to the status quo. And if you read Zizek's work on the subject, when he talks about the communist hypothesis, he's very explicit that he's not talking about a return to some kind of Soviet model uh, mm-hmm. or Chinese model. Uh, in fact, in many senses, it's an empty term that just expresses the fact that he's unhappy uh, with the status quo and we need to aspire to something that's better. Uh, and I think Sanders did something similar with his appeal to democratic socialism. In many cases, what he was appealing to or what he was putting forward uh, were policies that would look fundamentally out of place in any kind of European social democracy. Uh, think about the Nordic states, which he always appealed to. Uh, but nonetheless, Talking about socialism rather than social democracy uh, was a way of indicating that he thought there was a fundamental problem with the American status quo uh, and there needed to be a serious leap forward uh, that was going to be transformative in its implication. Uh, Now, whether gesturing to these kinds of radical transformations is a wise idea politically, I think, depends on the context and the audience. Uh, I don't think that there's a set answer to that Uh, because some people really want change uh, and they think that there are serious problems with the way that we're living right now and the only way to overcome them uh, would be through something that's really transformative Uh, but a lot of people also are really attached to the way things are right now and might be open uh, to significant improvement um, but you'd have to try to persuade them using a different kind of rhetorical strategy yeah that's very well said yeah Yeah, thank you one of the um, ongoing themes that just kind of organically developed so far in regards to politics is the place of theory. And the the left um, is often concerned with material conditions and sometimes dismisses the relevance of a kind of ideological shift on the basis of like, quote unquote, ideas. Um, what do you think of the of the space of, of theory in this context? Well, I think that theory has an important role to play uh, in helping uh, the left think through the conditions uh, that we find ourselves in. Uh, I think one of the things that we need to try to get theory to do more effectively uh, is make it accessible to ordinary people uh, and their mm-hmm. concerns. Uh, when I mean ordinary people, I don't mean, you know, um, people that, you know, uh, aren't smart or anything like that. I just mean people who don't spend uh, their whole day reading Slavoj Žižek books like some of us do, right? Yeah. Uh, and again, I think there are a number of outlets that are doing this really successfully. Uh, Contrapoints is one that I pointed to. Uh, you can also look at people like Philosophy Tube uh, or Nathan J. Robinson at Current Affairs, uh, who I think is a really clear and gifted writer uh, who has a knack uh, for boiling complex ideas down to their simplest possible iterations. Uh, and that's the kind of theory that I want us to see doing, I, I want us to do more of. Uh, no less rigorous and no less penetrating, uh, but speaking to people who go beyond graduate seminars uh, and literary cafes uh, and who will need to get into a coalition if we're actually going to achieve something at the political level 
in the next 10 years or so. All right. Well, thanks so much, Matt. I think, I think um, you, you gave us a lot to think about and, and uh, it's been really good talking to you. Yeah, you too. And, um, oh, I, I should just say, um, myself and a couple of other authors, Marion Trejo, Ben Burgess, and Conrad Hamilton, uh, have a book, uh, Myth and Mayhem, A Leftist Critique of Jordan Peterson, that'll be coming out on April the 24th. Uh, if you guys want, let me know. I'd be happy to send you a copy. But we'd be certainly curious to hear what you have to, to say. Oh, yeah, for oh, sure. That'd be, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate it. And we, we were kind of expecting maybe we would talk about Jordan Peterson, but perhaps that's for another time. Sure, yeah, give me a call if you want to talk about him, and I'd be happy to. Uh, sure, yeah. Okay, cool. Right. Thank you. Cool. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day, guys, and uh, let me know when this goes up, okay? Absolutely. Okay, so um, uh, what did you guys think? Where do, where do we want to have? I think we wanted to have a brief discussion and just kind of see what we thought about uh, where Matt took us. And um, I felt like he made some really interesting points. Uh, I think maybe maybe it'd be good to start of um, good to start what we thought of the way he kind of articulates postmodernism as as a culture in which um, postmodernism as a philosophy and as a um, a general kind of uh, um, movement of politics and uh, like uh, general media um, uh, take place within. What do you guys think of that, Matt? makes makes clear that i think his his emphasis really is on a transition between uh or or from postmodernism as something purely theoretical and then the situation that we find ourselves in now which is postmodernism as a cultural condition which which gives rise to an expression of postmodernism uh on the on uh on the conservative side that i think i think signals an, an end to to postmodernism and I agree that that makes sense. I, I think what your question in terms of like how the present iteration of postmodern conservatism kind of retroactively um, brings out the the imminent kind of flaws in postmodernism as a political pursuit. I just okay. I think it's really interesting that I, like Zizek's study of ideology uh, exposes that in this in this world where where we can't say anything, we can't make any truth claim, and that we've eschewed universalisms, there's still a potential once we understand ideology to move and to change the power structure in which postmodernism is taken up by the right best, and where postmodernism on the left has has basically silenced them and left them handcuffed. Um, I think like the study of ideology allows for us to understand that the framework in which postmodernism even means something. Can be can change, right? Is that this sort of anxiety about universalisms, both on the left and right, can be from from an ideological standpoint can be seen differently, right? That we can actually once again on the left approach universal claims with some fucking you know with some goddamn assurance, like like, but that that requires relating to one another on on a commons that that postmodernism basically raised to the ground, right? The the postmodernism celebrates the sort of the mutability of the subject and the and the 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 dissolution of capital T truth, but it's like, no, I think, I think the study of ideology allows for us to understand that we need to shift 
and, and start saying things about how we all, in fact, can come to a consensus on certain things that are universal and that postmodernism is no longer, as a tool, no longer helpful. Yeah, right. And I think that's a part, like, necessary um, in that process. Um, and this is what uh, Matt is pointing to, is understanding postmodernism as the um, culture of, um, of neoliberalism, as the articulation of the present um, form in which we find ourselves in the economic system. And uh, uh, in terms of like the postmodern subject that you were just discussing, uh, how it's just kind of um, less rooted to uh, notions of like you're a kind of cohesive subject and you're more uh, you more kind of take on a, a more uh, abstract relationship to to your subjectivity and that's that's very much and this is what Zizek points to where where capitalism itself um, leaves the subject all that solid melts into air um, and I think the where we we come to in an understanding of the subject through both capitalism and uh, and through its um, cultural understanding of postmodernism is where we can start to encounter the response to that, which is um, not not a kind of cohesive identitarian response, but um, understanding that while we're not, um, uh, our subjectivity is not um, uh, at one with itself. You know, we're not, we're the barred Lacanian subject, right? Like, yeah. um, the response to that is is a kind of abstract universalist approach that that doesn't reduce people to certain kinds to a, a multiplicity of types, but um, responds politically through, um, for example, like universalist programs. Right, right. Which seem to which would like I think operate on a level that transcends like our inability, or or rather our coming to know through the tools of postmodernism that. Democracy simply isn't out there for us to to know and to and to and to say and to say something truthful about. Subjectivity is not simply there. Like the world is not simply there. And I think postmodernism was an effective tool for the left to bring it to it. I think this like for for it to ultimately rear its ugly head in postmodern conservatism, where the where the right has absolutely no problem in through postmodernism finding recourse to grand narratives and tradition. And the left, without without that resource, I think, has to resort to by way of understanding, I think by 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 critiquing ideology in in a thoroughly Zizekian form, understanding that we need to actually begin to say things again about how we how we are interrelated in a common right. Yeah, well, that's why that's why Zizek um, responds to the situation by uh, the the crisis in the commons um, with his with his notion of communism. But uh, it's interesting that that um, Matt's description of Zizek's communism is almost kind of an empty signifier, and I think that actually makes a lot of sense because it's it's almost similar to what what uh, Todd McGowan said about Zizek's um, the way he um, is almost intentionally controversial as a as a way to get us to think and respond, right? Because Zizek referencing communism is um, well, he's not trying to be like um, a traditionalist about um, Leninism or Stalinism or, or, or other uh, more orthodox, more, yeah, orthodox um, iterations of communism. But he's trying to say, how can a new approach to communism respond to the crisis of the commons of uh, in, into in the current um, neoliberal um, framework? And I think, 
I think that probably leaves us in a good place to um, to uh, continue our discussions in the next few weeks. I think we got um, coming up um, a discussion with an author of a very interesting article on um, Zizek's new book on uh, the COVID crisis, and we'll be discussing that next week. Anything you guys want to add to that? That's it. Be safe. Talk soon. Yeah. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. And so on and so on. 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 And so on and so on.